Welcome to the HSS podcast. My name is Jan Frederik Brown. In this episode of the HSS podcast, we'll be discussing the Dutch Climate Agreement, the ins and outs of the agreement, and the implications thereof. The agreement was presented on the 28th of June and it completed a period of negotiations running for around 16 months. The Dutch government has ambitious climate goals for the Netherlands. Uh, greenhouse gas emissions should have fallen by 94%, excuse me, 49% in 2030 compared to the 1990 reference year. And that is around 100 megatons of CO2 equivalents. And in Europe, the Dutch are calling for a 55% reduction in emissions by 2030. If it proves impossible to agree to uh, on a stricter EU-wide target, the Netherlands will endeavor to forge more ambitious agreements with like-minded northwestern countries than the country allocations determined by the EU, a so-called coalition of the willing. Now, the biggest reduction tasks must be from the energy sector and industry, which together account for about 55% of emissions. Especially industry has a major task here up to 2030. It has to reduce around 19.4 megatons of CO2. That is a combination of existing policy and additional targets in the Dutch Climate Agreement. To talk about the Dutch Climate Agreement, our guest is Erik Klooster. He is the president of the Dutch Petroleum Industry Association. It's called in Dutch VNPI. And this association represents 12 petroleum industry companies in the Netherlands, which include Shell, Esso, Total and British Petroleum. These members uh, of this association, they are responsible for the storage of, of crude oil, the refining in five refineries in the Netherlands, the storage and transport of petroleum products and the sale of motor fuels and other products and service stations. The members of the VNPI are jointly responsible for 100% of the refining production and 80% of the sales of, of petroleum products in the Netherlands. The Dutch refinery sector constitutes 0.25% of the Dutch GMP and 5% of Dutch carbon emissions. Erik, welcome to this podcast. Thank you. That was a quite long introduction. Quite a long introduction, so indeed. Th- so that means you must be a very important man. No, I wouldn't say so. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, uh, just to clarify to our listeners, uh, me and Eric, we got acquainted while we were working in a working group on carbon capture storage uh, for the uh, Dutch industry table. That was a working group that that actually reported on this subject regarding the issue of carbon capture storage. The so-called joint fact-finding process. That's right, joint fact-finding. And we found a lot of facts, uh, I found. Well, I'm not sure whether the process itself was, um, well, satisfying to all members, but we, <laughs> I presume we come come back to that later. That's right, that's right. So uh, the title of this podcast is called Refining the Dutch Climate Agreement. And since Eric is in the business of refining, but uh, I've looked it up in a dictionary and it also means to elaborate. And that's what we're going to do uh, today. We're going to elaborate on the Dutch Climate Agreement. We don't have the ambition to make it better, purer, finer, but just to elaborate on what has been what has been agreed upon. And so first of all, I want to explain uh, something or I would like to talk about the negotiation process and the structure of the agreement. And secondly, look at some of the most important issues in the agreement, 
look at some of the criticisms. And last but not least, look at the agreement in an, in an international context. So first of all, Eric, uh, let's start with talking about the, let's talk about the negotiation process and the structure of the agreement. Now, in the Netherlands, we're famous for the so-called polder model, uh, which is a consensus, uh, a consensus based model of decision making. And, uh, it's based on, um, the acclaimed Dutch version of consensus-based economic and social policy making, and that came from the 1980s and 1990s. The Polder model has been described as a pragmatic recognition of pluriformity and cooperation despite differences. Was that the case in the Dutch Climate Agreement? Um, I think one could argue that uh, even for the Dutch, um, this this was taking the Polder model uh, a bit too far. So. Um, it's taken, well, you said 16 months. Uh, the Polder model, I think it has its origin basically in, in terms of, of, of labor. Um, I think this was the first time we've seen it in, in this extent in terms of climate. Um, I would doubt that we will see it again in the, in the next five years. So, uh, and that doesn't mean to say that I think in the basic, in the basis, uh, so the basic idea that you get uh, a lot of agreement and you get a lot of also NGOs type of organization behind these major events or major changes in, in, uh, in society. I think that's a very good thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, so the basic idea behind it was, uh, yeah, something I think I would support a lot. Yeah. So just for the sake of clarification, the Dutch climate agreement was, it was, uh, it was built around five negotiation tables. Can you say something briefly about these negotiation tables? Yeah, I think. Um, if you really want to, to really grasp the entire project, you need to go back to before the elections of 2017. So in March 2017, we had elections which in which, oh, unfortunately, the, the topic of climate wasn't covered a lot. I think what all had to do with Europe was a major topic and integration was a major topic as well. Um, and um, subsequently, those four parties in which I think you also have a oh, pretty green Two, two green parties, they did say that they want to adhere to the Paris Climate Agreement. Yes. And what they did was they asked the Dutch Environmental Assessment Agency, PBL, to say, okay, come up with a percentage by which we agree to the Paris Climate Agreement. Yes. So despite the fact that it wasn't a topic which was covered a lot in the election, um, they came up with a pretty steep target. So the PBL, the Environmental, Environmental Assessment Agency, said, okay, you need to do minus 49%. And they gave an, what we now say indicative table yeah. with measures, yeah. amongst which I think by, uh, by number, the, 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 the number for CCS was 22 megatons. And then we had a pretty large outcry by a lot of uh, parties but in the coalition agreement they said okay this minus 49 percent it needs to be filled in by societal organizations so both uh, employer associations industry association but also by environmental assessment agencies mm. so i think that's the first thing to really understand it wasn't as if this agreement came about uh, by nature it was a well, uh, it was a, a sentence written in the coalition agreement. So, um, and that sparked the whole process. And indeed, they thought about it pretty hard and pretty long for three or four months. And then 
April or March 2018, the whole process started and they did indeed divide it into five tables. Yeah. Industry, electricity, household, housing, um, agriculture, and uh, do I forget one? Uh, transport and mobility. Transport and mobility, yeah. yes. Yeah. And formerly I had a, a place in, in both uh, transport and mobility and in, this, and in industry, but well, because of time, I focused mainly on industry. Industry, yeah, yeah. yeah. And can you can you also say something about the division of the CO two uh, reductions? Which, so, so these five tables they, yeah. they all they all got assessment or they all got targets. Can you say something yeah. about those targets? Yes. So again, the environmental assessment agency they they did some numbers and they said, okay, if you want to break down this entire mi- minus forty nine percent. Uh, for example, we think industry should come up with 14.3 megatons of CO2. Yeah. I know the figure of transport and environment was roughly 7.2. Uh, and all these individual tables had an individual target. And it was left up to the tables to say, okay, this is the way we think we can come up with this individual target. Yeah. But the target was non-negotiable, of yeah. course. Uh, that was um and there were two really i mean of these five tables there were two really heavyweight tables the power sector and 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 on the other end of course the industry sector they had the biggest uh, co2 reduction emission targets yes and that has to do with the fact on how this environmental assessment agency looks at this issue so they they basically they draw up all the individual carbon abatement uh options and they said okay these two tables they can do by far the most uh, empower it makes sense but also they they uh, based on their figures they said okay industry has a lot of cheap options mm-hmm. uh, for example ccs but also electrification and also energy efficiency yeah. so we think in terms of uh the lowest cost for the society those two tables must do the uh well uh, the, the the heavy lifting uh, so yeah. to say and if you look at the industry table, can you say something more in general about the Dutch? Uh, I mean, so we are a relatively small country, but we have a large, yeah. we have a very large yeah. industrial yeah. sector. So uh, we have in the Netherlands five major industrial regions with 12 major energy intensive companies that, that combined are responsible for more than 60% of the Dutch CO2 emissions. And that also fall under the European emission trading system. Can you say first something about the five industrial regions? Uh, can you say something about the companies that are there, besides refining, of course? Yeah, so yes, we have a very large refining industry, which is very well connected to a very large chemical industry. Yeah. And uh, together, I think they account for 75% of the large emission uh, industrial emissions, CO2 emissions. Uh, on top of that, we also have Tata Steel. Tata Steel is, of course, a very large steel producing company. I think it's the largest emitting uh, industrial plant in Holland that we have. So if you take those three uh, sectors combined, we have 90% of uh, the entire energy intensive emissions. Uh, And those are mainly clustered in uh, the Amsterdam area, of course, the Rotterdam area. Then we have Zeeland, and then we also have uh, in Limburg, we call Camelot. Camelot. Yeah, Camelot. Uh, there's also a very large uh, chemical sector there. Uh, and then you have in the north of Holland, there's also chemical industry uh, near the region of Delft Cell. Yeah. Uh, 
Um, and then you have that. Those are the the the, the five main uh, industrial sectors. On top of that, you also have paper industry, you have glass industry, and uh, food industry. So, but the major CO2 emitter of all those regions is the area around the port of Rotterdam. Yeah, yeah. Uh, combines. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and that's your field of expertise. That's where it, oh, I mean, that's I mean, like that is the organization that that you represent. Yes, but I think uh, well, discussing this issue for over four, 15 months, I think uh, I I can now honestly say that I have a pretty clear picture of of of, of the entire picture of of Holland. So uh, yes, there's also large industry in Zeeland, for example, mm. in which you have a pretty good connection of of both. Uh, there's a refinery there. There's Dow Chemical there. There's uh, Yara is there. So uh, and all those those regions, they have their own assets and they have their also their own um, carbon abatement options. Mm -hmm. Why is a Dutch? I mean, if you now if we sort of zoom out, just very briefly, why is the Netherlands pushing so hard to be to be Europe's green leader in that respect? Just to make clear, we are when it comes to uh, to the share of renewables in the Dutch energy mix, oh. we are laggards European wise. We only have Malta and I think Luxembourg or even less um, active in that area. So, we, so like we want to um, reinvent ourselves in to a very large extent. We want to innovate in the area of energy production, energy usage, energy application. But why do we want to do this so radical? Because it is quite radical if you look at it. Uh, yeah, but there's there are definitely two ways of looking at it. So, um, and and you you could disagree with the way the Environmental Assessment Agency have done has done the assessment. But they've simply said, okay, this is the target if you want to agree to Paris. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is, well, uh, I think that is something that you should strive for. Um, and then, of course, you should very much decouple uh, the renewable energy percentage from the total amount of emissions. So um, if you look at the industry, I think the industry uh, in Holland across the board is pretty energy efficient. I know from my industry... We have the lowest emissions of Europe, uh, but if the the broad consensus is, and it's not just in in Holland, is that if you really want to take decarbonization, the next step, just uh, also out of the power sector, you you need to do a lot more, mm. not just increase the the share of renewables. You need to do that as well. Mm. Um, and I think Holland is, um, if if any country, Holland is is based uh, is located perfectly well to do that so you have a large energy intensive industry very bulky uh, but i don't know any place in the world where you have so much emissions on such a small spot also very much very located very close to both um, a very large renewable energy source which is wind offshore mm -hmm. and empty gas fields in, in only 30 kilometers away so yep. you have a lot of options to decarbonize your um, your industry. Yeah. So it's not only about it's not only about ramping up your share. Uh, like uh, it's not only about ramping up the share of the renewables in your energy mix. It's about decarbonization at large, and that's what the Dutch Climate Agreement is also very much about. It yep. looks at decarbonization. Yeah. One of the very uh, one of the very controversial issues in the Dutch Climate Agreement concerns carbon capture storage. Um, uh, 
Can you say something about the outcome? What was agreed upon it? I mean, what what is now going to be the solution? So this was one of the most heavily debated issues amongst the carbon tax uh, and who pays for what. Yeah. So those were the three items which were also in the last month uh, on the table. Uh, and um, again, coming back to the point I made, I just made, CCS is, in, in our view... Um, one of the options which a lot of Dutch industry uh, can make a lot of good steps with. Mm. So we have, and that's different from, for example, industry in Germany, industry in Belgium. We have a lot of hydrogen production in Holland um, and Environmental Assessment Agency also made it clear that if anything, if there's one cheap option with which you can do CCS, it's on your uh, steam methane reforming plants. so um, the outcome is is that the total amount of CCS in industry is kept to 7.2 megatons. Um, that is a pretty arbitrary number, which came out of the uh, PBL again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and NGOs pushed a lot for um, a lower number. Yeah, because case. what was the problem? So the main issue was regarding carbon capture storage. Uh, the industry said or uh, they say we need this for uh, to actually come to the targets that are agreed on according to uh, what is said in the Paris Agreement. The NGOs, for example, in the Netherlands, Greenpeace and uh, Stichting Natuur en Milieu, um, they said that, well, this actually hinders investment in green production, green renewables, green hydrogen production, for example. Yes, and on top of that, and I think you were part of that process as well, they say, okay, uh, we also think that green hydrogen is a cheaper option in yes. 2030. Yes. So uh, I fully disagree with that. Yeah. Uh, it's based on, I think, projections of, of, for example, electricity prices, which are not realistic. You need electricity prices of below 20 euros per, me- per megawatt hour. Uh, I don't think that will be achieved. And all or most of the academic studies are really pointing out in the fact that you, you need both. You also need you need what we call blue hydrogen, uh, so uh, uh, hydrogen production with CCS, but you also need green hydrogen. Yeah. Um, and this was indeed one of the most heavily debated issues, and I think it still is, and I think it'll be for the coming period. Uh, the good thing which came out of the climate agreement that we can now, for example, do a project like Portals, with it, which is a, pro- a project in Rotterdam, um, and we can really start investing probably will within a couple of the, the within two or three years. So, yeah. um, but this po- like okay, just for the just for the sake of clarification, you have three kinds of ways which which you can make hydrogen. The first one's gray hydrogen, which is done with gas, which is the most common way to produce hydrogen. Yeah. Like at this level, I think a kilo of hydrogen costs one euro fifty if you make it with uh, if you make it with gas. Then you have the option to do it with blue hydrogen, which you just mentioned, which is the production of hydrogen where you store uh, the CO2 emissions, carbon capture storage, and at a later stage, carbon capture and uh, utilization. And then there's green hydrogen production, which we use sun and wind to say it very uh, 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 in a very simple term. Uh, and then you can also produce hydrogen. But the there, cost- there are actually more. Somebody, I think the other week, came up to me. He said, you also have purple hydrogen. Oh, <laughs> but, okay. Uh, well, by, by now, uh, <laughs> we were kind of fed up with all the color. Um, okay. 
Yeah, but, but those were the main issues which were on the table. And yes. and now, if you look at the cost, if uh, if you now have to produce a kilo of hydrogen with uh, with simply with the renewables, is around seven eight euros per kilo. But yeah, and it's but it's not just the cost. So the trick or the the most important thing to understand with green hydrogen is that you first need to decarbonize your electricity production mm. because if you don't. Uh, more emissions will come up. So I think it came out of this joint fact-finding that before the grid emission factor of the power is below 180 grams per kilowatt hour, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So um, invest in projects so the, the the cost of the technology will come down, mm. but really have a, really, a, a, a good look at how the power um, mix is progressing. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about hydrogen when we go talk about this in a more international context, because this is something that we need to really look at more in terms of the whole international development of hydrogen. I want to go back to an issue that's also very uh, that was also very important for industry next to CCS and hydrogen. That is a CO2 price or a CO2 charge. Can you say something about this? What what is actually meant by that and what? What sort of agreement is in the Dutch climate agreement now on this issue? So uh, if you look at the text, um, and it's also, you can read it in our response, a lot is still unclear and a lot needs to be worked out for. But uh, the basic idea behind it is that you take you take an individual company or you take an individual sector and their emissions are based on the EU ETS benchmark. Yep. So you start from EU ETS benchmark in 2030, uh, 2020, and then you basically draw a line to 2030, and the line is based on the the Dutch target. Um, and all those emissions which are above that line, they will be taxed, and they will be taxed increasingly. So it will start at 30, yeah, uh, and it'll probably end up at, at 100 or 130, which is Um, per ton of CO2. Per ton of CO2, yeah. uh, which you are above the threshold. Yeah. Um, and our main objections with that particular method is that you step away from EU ETS. So it's not just a, an increase of the EU ETS price. Basically, the the um, the amount which you tax also. Um, you step away from ETS. So it's no longer just EU ETS benchmark. And the EU ETS benchmark, um, those are the the average of the top 10% uh, per sector. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this will probably require, and again, uh, it needs to be worked out, but you'll probably need to be better than the top 10% of EU ETS, which is quite a steep target. Yeah, indeed. and that's only then for the industry in the Netherlands. So that would mean an extra additional... Uh, I say pressure yeah. for uh, to be to be more green than the rest of not only for the rest of Europe but for the rest of the world. And again, I think we 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 agree to the minus forty nine percent, and we agree that there are a lot of options. But mm -hmm. our main objection with this uh, particular method is is that we have certain companies, for example, in Zeeland or in Limburg. Uh, for example, in the chemical industry or, for example, refiners without hydrogen production who do not have a lot of cheap abatement options. Uh, 
and that individual line it will be drawn for every individual company and you will be taxed for the amount on which you are above the, the threshold mm. uh, and what we fear is that certain sectors who are very much exposed to international trade um, they, they will get into a very difficult position and that's also due to the fact if i can say it very simply that co2 imported is not taxed in that no, way it will not be no, no. So that is a major problem. Yes. So uh, ammonia producers, uh, hydrogen producers, some uh, refining industry and also Tata Steel. So uh, steel, they are, of course, very trade exposed. Yeah. 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 And that also links, of course, to the CO2 emissions in the different scopes. Can you say something about that? How important that is for industry? If you look at the scope one, so so there are three scopes of emissions. Scope one and scope uh, two and scope three. Uh, scope one concerns the uh, concerns the direct emissions from a company, as, uh, in as far as I understand it. Scope two that refers to the indirect greenhouse gas emissions that uh, that generate from all grid-bound energy purchased by a company. And scope three refers to all indirect greenhouse gas emissions that arise from upstream and downstream activities. How important is that for the Dutch industry and how can you link this to what's been agreed upon in the Dutch climate agreement? So this needs to be worked out in more detail at this point in time. And for example, we see a lot of potential, for example, in residual heat. So the refining industry, we have a lot of potential for residual residual heat for households. Mm. But it also requires pretty steep investments on an on a site. Um, and uh, we haven't been been able to really, uh, and that needs to be worked out for, for example, in the subsidy scheme. Are you able, as an as a refinery or as a refinery or a chemical plant, to also well get subsidies for the investment that you make for these types of uh, carbon emission abatement mm. options? Mm. Uh, at this point in time, it is uh, a big question mark. And this needs to be resolved, or this can be resolved, or this will be resolved? Um, it needs to be resolved if you want these investments to really take off, of course. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we talked very briefly about CCS. We talked a bit um, about the CO2 price charge. Um, there's also going to be a C- There's also going to be a CO2 minimum price for the power sector. Yeah. Uh, the Dutch government recently came up with a legislative proposal on this of a minimum CO2 price of around 13 euros starting in 2020, as far as I'm correct. Uh, and that should uh, go to about 30 euros uh, in 2030. Is this going to be in any kind of way very effective? If you look at the whole development of the ETS, which is currently around 27 euros, I think the uh, electricity uh, generators did a pretty good job. <laughs> so we would have liked to have uh, uh, swapped places in in uh, w- with this um, uh, in individual uh, type of policy. But uh, so I haven't been involved in the electricity. Of course, we've looked at this, um, and no, I I don't know any projection of of EU ETS that will end up in thirty in twenty th- uh, thirty euros in twenty thirty. So. All projections that I've seen, they go uh, right up to 40, 45, 47. Yeah, so yeah. Um, the general assessment is is that this will not have any any reasonable effect, except for the fact that it'll uh, 
lay some sort of basis within EU ETS. Uh, for example, when you have economic downturn. Yeah, there's also, uh, so Eric, there's also some criticism, of course, on the agreement. We Dutch are very good at criticizing um, uh, in that sense. But this comes from, for example, uh, the chief policy officer of Wind Europe. It, uh, it recently wrote that the Dutch climate agreement is thin on measures to push the to push for the electrification of heating, transport and industrial processes. There's not even a figure for the level of electricity demand in industry. The Dutch are good at setting an example with their 94, uh, with their 49% emission reduction goal, but it's unfortunate they're reducing incentives for the, for the electrification of industry and transport. Electrification increases energy efficiency and saves money. The Dutch should be embracing it. What do you think of this criticism? Yeah, well, um, we've also been slightly critical uh, into, uh, from the part of the industry. Um, some NGOs have been critical. I think it's inevitable if you strike such a deal that some people will be uh, critical. Um, I, don't, I don't know any country within Europe or I don't see any country anywhere in the world that is... Um, I wouldn't say doing this because we still need to do this. Um, but I think this is going pretty far uh, and it's pretty easy to be critical. So uh, especially if you look at the industry, what is now going to happen in Holland? And I, 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 I think it is going to happen. Um, I don't see this taking place anywhere else. So, mm. um, yeah, I think it's easy to be critical. But but yeah, of course it always is. But but what do you think are the consequences for the Dutch industry sector? How will they benefit or how will they not benefit from from like from these ambitions? And what are the options to actually look across the borders and especially to our neighbors in Germany? Yeah. There's a lot of potential uh, to actually work together on infrastructure, on uh, the transport of not only CO2 emissions, but on methane, hydrogen. Ah power, synthetic gas, biogas, natural gas. Can you say something about what the options are providing Dutch industrial players with, for example, Germany, but also other, also with other European countries? Um, so, so my fear still is that some, some companies and some sectors will be hit too hard by this tax. So which uh, sectors are that? So, so the, 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 the sectors like some parts of the chemical industry, for example, the, the, the crackers on high temperature, uh, they don't have a lot of carbon abatement options, uh, some refineries, Tata Steel. So uh, having said that, I think there will also be, of course, subsidy of 550 million euros for CO2 reduction options within industry. And I don't see any country in the world doing that. And those options will be mainly, of course, CCS, but we also see electrification really taking off. Yeah. Um, and I know indeed that, for example, the the, 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 the Ruhr area, uh, but also the Antwerp area is looking at what is taking place in Holland, for example, in terms of CCS, uh, on how they can tap into these developments. Um, but what I also pick up on is that discussion in Belgium is is uh, by nowhere near it is now in Holland. Mm. So especially carbon abatement within industry. Uh, we've taken quite a long time, 16 months, 
but we now do know a lot more and we we have a pretty good sense of of where this is where this all is going uh, and i don't see that in any um at the same level in in belgium and germany might be in some of the nordic countries um so i see a bit of a uh, laid-back approach from the from the neighboring countries yeah well maybe not in all countries because in germany there is a discussion about introducing a cu to uh to also to also introduce a carbon floor price for example yeah. for the power sector not for but not for industry not for industry no 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 no, no. no. uh so um but do you see so do you think that the that actually that the dutch agreement offers opportunities that we can faster innovate and also in certain industrial processing for example uh, steam cracking or or other areas or do you think mm, that's just relevant that's just so some options might be pretty local to be frank so f- for example what we will do in terms of using the uh, extra electricity uh, coming offshore and for example producing hydrogen with it those options will be pretty local mm. Um, if you look at options which are more far out, for example, uh, how, how do you electrify your furnaces? I think we need to do that in terms of uh, on a on a far broader scope. So you need to t- team up with Belgium and with Germany for those options. Yeah, uh, and those are the options. So we have had a pretty pretty extensive look at 2030. But there are also a lot of options beyond 2030, and and those are mainly electric. Electric. Yeah. Uh, but before you can electrify a furnace on a on a refinery, uh, you need to solve some issues. And what is the role of hydrogen in this? I mean, it's it's um, <laughs> it's how you say it. It's very much a buzzword. Everybody's talking about hydrogen like it's the new gold almost. Uh, how do you no. see this? So yesterday I was at the presentation of a new project, which is a H Vision project. Um, and um, just as an example, they will build a new hydrogen plant, an ATR plant, uh, and the big benefit is it will it is designed to uh, fire on refinery off gases, and um, then you have two benefits. So first of all, you have an offlet for your refinery gases, which is very difficult on a refinery, mm-hmm. uh, and you can reach. Uh, CO2 emission emissions further down, um, uh, further down in the uh, in the in the supply chain. Okay. Um, so there are quite a number of advantages for hydrogen, uh, but you need to scale it up. Yeah. Uh, and and we we simply first need to start from one step at a time instead of saying okay we, this is the picture that we are now going to to go to. Um, so yes, it's a buzzword, and there are a lot of uh, a lot of benefits. Uh, but we also need to do a lot of hard work before we're there. And now is the problem that you have, of course, large scale electrolyzers, but it's usually for one client. For example, Shell Germany has built or is building a large PEM. Uh, yeah. is is in the process of building a large PEM electrolyzer, but that's for one client. What what is what is what I think is probably necessary, and, and and maybe you can say something about that, is that you need that you more or less need hydrogen hubs for more customers that you can share in the cost of infrastructure, in the cost of of the process of electrolyzing, or do you see this differently? No. Um, so uh, one of the largest benefit of using hydrogen is that you could use a lot of the existing infrastructure. Yeah. Um, 
at this point in time, I'm not sure whether you use it in, in a hub type of function. That might be uh, because uh, there, there are still a lot of um, assessment work going on. So do you make the hydrogen offshore or do you make it, uh, let's say, more close to a refinery or any other industrial plants? Uh, this all needs to be worked out for from a sector which uses a lot of hydrogen. I see a lot of uh, plants and a lot of uh, outlooks um, which not have all that yet taken into account the fact that, for example, we need hydrogen uh, 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. So um, it, 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 uh, the, the, all of the plants, they still need to take account of the, also of the users of hydrogen. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, we need it 24 hours a day at a certain pressure and it needs to be reliable. Otherwise, we have a problem. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Not sure whether that answers your question. But uh, <laughs> no, well, it's still. Uh, could you also maybe uh, come up with some specific plans, or that's something that 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 you can share with our listeners that 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 maybe catches what you said in more concrete terms? So last year we did a study uh, to look at the decarbonization options before 2030 and also after 20, uh, 2030. So the period of 2030 2050, yes. For example, you could fire your furnaces on hydrogen. It requires relative small adjust, uh, adjustments within a refinery. You, you need to change, for example, the burners, which is a quite, quite a big step, but you could do that. And then you need an off, an off, an offtake for your refinery off gases. But if you could do that, that is a very, very, um, big step within the refineries. Mm. Um, that is something that, well, I wouldn't say we've looked at it, um, that that's, that's pretty far out. So the first step that we have taken, that we have taken, uh, quite a bit of, um, that we've looked at is of course, hydrogen projection and you, on your, uh, to, uh, CCS on your hydrogen projection. That's the first step that we can start with. Yeah. And I think Holland is positioned uh, uh, very well for that. Um. Yeah, that's something that really bothers me. Eric keeps talking about Holland, and for everybody who doesn't come from either one of the uh, Dutch provinces, Zuid or North Holland, that's does quite it, an insult. Does so. it bother you a lot? <laughs> <laughs> I'll stop then. Uh. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. No, uh, I still have so many questions, but I think we've run out of time. I think there's so much more to talk about, especially about the future of, uh, of the European refinery in a more international context, but I think we can save that for uh, for a later podcast. For later podcast. If that's possible. Sure. Yeah. Uh, it was very nice having you here, Eric, and uh, I hope everybody enjoyed the conversation. And for more podcasts, uh, check out the HSS website called www.hss.nl. Thank you. My pleasure. Mm -hmm.